Welcome to another installment of Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King. This is our study through the book of Acts, kind of an overview that we're taking, maybe a chapter, half a chapter at a time. So we're going through, we're seeing what the apostles are doing, how God is building the church of Jesus Christ uh, throughout the known world at the time in the first century. And so we're taking a close look at the, uh, at the things that God is doing through the Holy Spirit, through his servants, the apostles, as he spreads the good news of Jesus Christ. And we take this up in Acts chapter 18 today. We're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to go on into chapter 19 quite a bit. And we're going to take a look at what this building of the church actually looks like in practice. How does it really unfold in the lives of human beings as the gospel comes to them, as the Holy Spirit begins to work in them, as they begin to work and serve in their local churches? And this is going to be very helpful to us because uh, we're going to see these same principles apply today, that the same God who was building the church in the first century is building it in the 21st century. And we're going to find that the same principles apply to how we may minister, how we may see what God is doing, and join him in it. And so we're going to begin in chapter 18, verse 18. And we're going to look at a passage that is rich in Christ building his church. We're going to look at various people coming in and out of the lives of one another, uh, building one another up in the church. Because uh, we're going to stop and take a look at this because as we read the book of Acts and we get to the ministry of Paul and his missionary journeys, he kind of gets into a rhythm and it's easy for us to be lulled into a sense of comfort as we go through and we begin to understand, okay, this is real clear. Paul gets to a community. He teaches in the synagogue till they get tired of him. He teaches to the Gentiles until there's a riot or something and he gets thrown out of town. He goes on to the next place. But now what we're seeing as we proceed through the book of Acts is a great number of other people now ministering the gospel of Christ, ministering with Paul and ministering to Paul. And many other people are involved from all around the known world at the time. And what we're going to look for today is where are these people coming from and, and why is all this, all this moving about happening? And we're going to read this in two big chunks. So we're going to start in uh, chapter 18 and uh, verse 18. So let's take a look at this together. It says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and this is in Corinth, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogues and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch after spending some more time there. He departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Powerfully important work that we're seeing happen here. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we, uh, we engage with you today in this reading of your scripture. We pray that you would lend us understanding of these things, that you would help us to see your great truth in all these things and apply them to the work that you are doing in us and through us. Lord, this day we pray that you grant your servants to understand your word, that you build up your church, and that you bring the gospel to many more people. We thank you and we praise you for this wondrous word which you have passed down to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we begin by taking a look at some of the people involved here. And what I want you to see uh, is in the people of God here, what's happening. And first, uh, first up is Priscilla and Aquila. And we meet them in uh, chapter 18. And we had actually spoke about them in a previous message when we discussed them as part of God's presence with Paul, that Paul had been encouraged by God while he was at Corinth, that I am with you. And we explored, what does that mean that God says, I am with you? Well, we understand he is with you in spirit, of course. He is with you in his guidance over all things that are happening, but he's with you tangibly in the people of God that surround you and minister with you. And Priscilla and Aquila were crucial to the work that Paul was doing in Corinth. And But what we want to do this time is we don't want to be Paul-centered. We want to discuss them uh, of their own. You know, what is Priscilla and Aquila's story here. Well, we see that Aquila was from Pontus. Now, this is a, a province in northern Asia Minor, and it is on the coast of the Black Sea. It is not a place mentioned as Paul going there, but it is a place that's well known. It's not too far from the places he's already ministered uh, through Galatia and the other places that he's been in Asia Minor. Uh, we see that Aquila and Priscilla both had come from Rome. They were most recently in Rome, but the Jewish uh, people had been expelled from Rome by Claudius. And so they end up somehow in Corinth. And they meet Paul there and they minister with Paul about 18 months. And they work together with Paul, not only in the ministry of the gospel, but also in making tents. That was their vocation. And that's perhaps where they met Paul, how they came to know him. And they ministered with him there quite some time. Now, you notice in chapter 18 and verses 18 and 19 here, we see um, that Paul stayed in Corinth quite a while. He was there like a year and a half, we think, according to the text. And uh, when he left, Priscilla and Aquila left with him. And uh, they went through Sancria with him. And so they're, you know, on Paul's second missionary journey, which 
Uh, if you take a look at the map, they leave Corinth, they go across land to Sancria, then they have to get on board a ship to go over to the area of Ephesus. And when they left Corinth with Paul across land over to Ephesus, they ministered at Ephesus with Paul, and that they stayed behind in Ephesus after Paul left there, Paul having ministered there about two years. Now let's put some pieces together here. We know there were people traveling with Paul. They, we know there were people that were normally with Paul or people that were with Paul specifically in Ephesus. So we know that Priscilla and Aquila crossed paths with people like Silas and Timothy and Luke, the writer of the, the book of Acts, and many others that we've already met or will meet later in the book of Acts or that are mentioned in the letters. And so here, Priscilla and Aquila become woven into the lives of the other believers, not just Paul, but many other people as well. And in Ephesus, uh, like many other people who had been banished from Rome for one reason or another and landed in the other cities uh, nearby, uh, they eventually were able to return to Rome. In Romans chapter 16, they're mentioned by Paul as uh, being in Rome. And possibly then even traveling back again to Ephesus as they're greeted by Paul in through Timothy's letter in 2 Timothy 4.19, which was written very late in Paul's life. He is writing to Timothy, who is likely in Ephesus, and he mentions Priscilla and Aquila at Ephesus. So these were people that continued to travel, continued to minister. Even though Paul was out of the picture for them, they were in touch. They knew who he was. He knew who they were and where they were. And so he kept track of them. So it was very fascinating that somewhere along the way, these two people became believers in Jesus Christ. And they became believers perhaps through the ministry of Paul when they met him at at uh, Corinth, but maybe they were already believers prior to that. And then we find them laboring in the church, receiving the kind of praise from Paul, becoming the kind of people as he describes here in Romans 16. He says near the end of his letter to Rome, he says, greet Prisca, which is a shortening of her word, Prisca and Aquila, uh, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. So these are very well-known, very faithful, ministering people in the name of the Lord. And so a great work that they did. But then we also meet this fellow, Apollos. And we meet him in Acts 18.24. He was from Alexandria. Now Alexandria is on the northern coast of Africa, and this is a larger city than any that have been visited in the book of Acts. It's bigger than Ephesus or Corinth or Athens. This is a significant city, and it's not just significant in its size. It is basically the Rome on the other side of the puddle. That is, on the other side of the Mediterranean, this is the equivalent to Rome in its influence, in its beauty, in its uh culture and its diversity. It was known for its great library, which is considered one of the, the wonders of the ancient world. This was a place of learning, of exchange of ideas, of great amounts of commerce that happened there. So this is a highly influential city. And here we meet Apollos 
from this city, and he's everything you'd expect to get from a city like that. He is eloquent. He is competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed. He is described as fervent, and the word being used there literally is boiling, that he is just boiling over with enthusiasm for the gospel. And he is obviously then a follower of Jesus, accurately teaching the things concerning Jesus, which means he was faithful and true. He was someone that was careful with the gospel. He was careful to teach it right. And as we see how he ministered while he was in Corinth, refuting the Jews so accurately that we understand him to be very, uh, very fluent if you would, in the scriptures, and very able to take on Jewish leadership in defending Christ, uh, Jesus as the Christ. But, this is interesting, he didn't know the baptism of Jesus. And, you know, although he had so much going for him, as he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, it says, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, took him aside, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So he had a lot going for him, but he didn't understand the baptism of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, that means he only understood John the Baptist's baptism. And John the Baptist baptized for repentance to prepare for the coming kingdom. Now, Jesus brings the kingdom. The gospel is the kingdom breaking into our world and and taking over. And Jesus' baptism is slightly different from John's. And yeah, it does uh, have an idea of repentance because it has an idea of salvation. We know there's no salvation without repentance. But in Romans chapter 6, we find that the baptism of Jesus identifies us with his death and burial and resurrection. And so we recognize the baptism of Jesus to represent the old life dying being left in the grave, so to speak. And as we're raised up out of the water, it's like we raised to walk in a newness of life with him. And so they had to instruct him in this. They had to teach him these things. And they were kind enough to do it. They were wise, and he was wise enough to take the instruction. And they form a bond so tight that they end up endorsing Apollos as he wants to go minister in Corinth in Achaia. And so this is important. They they form this great bond, even though they began with a correction and adding to what he was doing. So Apollos becomes well-known at Corinth, but also beyond Corinth. Of course, he's mentioned in the Corinthian letters in chapters 1 and 3 and 16 of 1 Corinthians. He's also mentioned in Titus 3.13, where Paul is well familiar with who he is He was this super-educated, skilled man from Alexandria. But here's what you might be thinking, and something I thought as I read this. Why didn't he stay in Alexandria? There's so many people there. Surely that's a great ministry field. It was estimated at that time it had a population of 800,000 or so. And, And why does he need to travel? Well, we don't know why he's traveling. He could have been traveling for some other purpose, or he could have just been traveling for the gospel, just doing what Paul was doing. I feel like I need to go here and there and and spread the good news. We don't know, but we do know this, that God put Priscilla and Aquila in his path, and it corrected him, and it surely encouraged them, and it helped refine 
what it is he was teaching and what he knew. So then he goes on to Corinth. Meanwhile, Paul goes to Ephesus. Let's read and pick this up in chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, so he did go there with the encouragement of the believers, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And when he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, well, into John's baptism. So a similar situation. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, then a Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were twelve men in all. And so we saw Priscilla and Aquila, we saw Apollos, and now we see these twelve men that Paul meets in Ephesus. And uh, something here that's interesting and worthy of noting here is that these men began speaking in tongues in the presence of Paul. But I want you to notice something, that speaking in tongues in the book of Acts only occurs in the presence of the apostles, to be either a sign to the apostles or a sign to the people there that indeed these are the apostles, that they have the true gospel. Um, but that's just an aside, and that's a topic that could take another entire sermon for sure. But I do want to point that out so that you can search the scriptures to see if this is true. And the apostles are defined in Acts chapter 1 in such a way as to make their presence today impossible. They recognize apostles as those who had known Jesus and were witnesses to his resurrection. And Paul even admits, yes, I'm an apostle, he declares, but I'm one untimely born. In other words, Paul saw that he was the exception to the apostles, that the other apostles, which he considered to be the true, truest apostles, were the ones who had ministered with Jesus himself. So they were all gone by the end of the first century, John perhaps being the last of them to go. And so what we see is, why are they speaking tongues here? Well, for two reasons, I believe. Number one, so that Paul would know for certain that they had received the Holy Spirit, that they were the real deal, that now they truly believed and their faith was complete. But also that they would understand that Paul was the true apostle, that he was a true apostle having the truth about the faith, because if this is something that they were wrong about, then there were probably many other things they could learn from Paul. And it, it had to be known. He's the source. He's the teacher. He's the one that when he uh, laid his hands on you, you received the Holy Spirit. Paul uses this logic with Timothy. He says, remember the gift that came to you by the laying on of hands by me. And so Paul recognizes that this is a, a way of God endorsing the givers and the receivers of these things to one another. And so Paul comes into their life. Their path is corrected now. The picture is getting filled out for these guys. And Paul stays there in two years, uh, for about two years, ministering in Ephesus. And these men continue then to benefit from his teaching. 
But think about the benefit to Paul. Maybe this is overlooked. See, we we do kind of a Paul-centered reading of this section of Acts, and we think Paul's everything, and Paul's putting into everything. We don't recognize how much God puts into Paul. Look at the encouragement Paul receives, because here's 12 believers, and yes, they did believe before he came along. And here's 12 believers that you didn't uh, start, that you didn't bring the gospel to. These guys learned the gospel somewhere else. They didn't learn it completely or wholly, but nevertheless, they knew it. And Paul comes to town, and guess what? He's got a jump start on a church. He's already got 12 men, potentially 12 families, that are already gung-ho about Jesus Christ, that are already believers in Jesus Christ. Now they've received the Holy Spirit. They're on board with Paul. And this ministry in Ephesus is off to a tremendous start because of it. Paul's not starting at ground zero anymore. He's starting now with people that are already there. So who were these men and why were they there? Were they locals? Were they travelers? We don't know. Did they stay there and minister at Ephesus or did they go out to other places? We don't know. What did these men go on to do? We don't really know, but we do know this, that there was a mutual benefit to their meeting. There was a a great thing that God did in putting the, crossing these paths of these 12 men with the apostle Paul just like all the others. Now, there's one more short section we want to read to read about one more person that we're very interested in, and this is Tyrannus. Look at verses 8 through 10 here. Uh, He entered the synagogue, and this, of course, is Paul, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks." Now, Tyrannus is mentioned only here in verses 9 and 10, and he was obviously a man of means. He had a school, a hall. He had some type of a place that was suitable for the disciples to meet and to teach and to learn in. And so this is something close in the book of Acts here to a church building. And we saw this previously in in someone else's house, that it was dedicated to this purpose. But by and large, the ministry of the church has been from house to house in the houses of people. But now here we have Tyrannus. He's got this space. It's a hall of some kind. It's a school of some kind. Uh, Maybe it was a rabbinical school. Maybe it was uh, some kind of a trade school or something. Nevertheless, now it is a Christian school. Now it is a tool of the church for the learning of the gospel. So here we have four very different stories, all chained together. Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, the 12 men, Tyrannus. All very different people from different places with different paths that they have walked to come to know the Lord, to grow in the Lord. Different places they ministered, different places they ended up. 
But the question is, why is Luke piled all these together here? Why in chapters 18 and 19 do we see all these different people come and go? Some mentioned only a couple times. Uh, some mentioned many times, even in the letters. Some mentioned only in the one verse. These 12 men, that's all we know about them. In the one verse, in Tyrannus, he gets all of two verses. So why is he accounting these things at this time? Well, let's make a couple observations that we learn from these. This is how God moves his people. God was spreading the gospel throughout the world in a variety of ways. And this is terribly exciting because from uh, North Africa, we find out, oh, they've heard the gospel in North Africa. Oh, and these people come from Rome. Oh, they've heard the gospel in Rome. And they're in Ephesus now. And everywhere they go, now Paul and the others are bumping into people that are already believing. And this supports Luke's purposes in writing the book of Acts, in showing very clearly how these things came and how Paul fit into these things and Peter and the others. The gospel is spreading just as Jesus has promised. And it's really fascinating. This kind of harkens back and kind of reminds me of the Old Testament when the prophet Elijah had been ministering. He had this great big showdown with the prophets of Baal, an account that we love to read about because it's so exciting in this confrontation and how God shows himself as a supreme God over these false prophets. And But immediately after, we find Elijah fleeing to the wilderness because Jezebel the queen was, was hunting him down, looking for him, and had threatened his life. And he's kind of saying, oh, woe is me. Am I the only one that cares? Am I the only one that believes? And the Lord kind of rebukes him and says, you know what? No, I've got 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And here we have, you know, God is at work in other places, through other people. We need to be looking for this. And, and this is the great encouragement of the book of Acts because Paul is found ministering at the book of Acts, but we know he didn't live much past that. He died somewhere around 63 or 64 AD at the hands of the Roman emperor. And so Paul is gone. But yet the gospel lives on because it doesn't depend on anyone one human being. It depends upon Jesus Christ. He's the one that said, I will build my church. And that's precisely what we see him doing. And we see him doing it through all kinds of people. And nobody's got it perfect, but the church, because it is a body of believers, because it's Jesus behind the building of it, the church becomes self-correcting. And these 12 men don't quite have everything right. God sends him Paul. And this guy Apollos, although God has sent him all over the place, God sends him Priscilla and Aquila to kind of correct him and guide him and steer him. And he steers him to the uh, Corinthian church, which is very interesting because Paul had just spent a great deal of time there. They had the Apostle Paul for 18 months. What else could they possibly need? Surely Paul taught them everything they needed to know. But no, God sends them Apollos. Why? Because for some reason, they needed him. And this is powerfully important for us to understand and for us to shape our view of how God builds the church. We can back up here and we can look at the overall picture and see that through the proclamation of the gospel... And the power of the Holy Spirit, he is moving his people around where he needs them to minister the gospel in the most effective way.
It doesn't look effective from our perspective. From, from our perspective, it looks crazy. But let's talk about how does God move his people? Well, first of all, there's internal motivation. And we see this in the book of Acts. And we hear things like, you know, it seemed good to us. Or it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. Go to Acts chapter 15. See the decision that the council made. That they had come together, they prayed and they thought about things. And then they say, well, this is what seems good to us. And we think also the Holy Spirit as well, because we agree on this. And so there's this internal motivation. The Holy Spirit uh, working together with believers, they do what seems good to them. And they are indeed uh, moving in the direction God would have them move. But here's what I, many people overthink this. Many people overcomplicate this. Jesus said in John chapter 15, it's an important chapter to understand how to build the church because the root of building the church is the Christians abiding in Jesus. Then they know the will of God. This is how we know the will of God. This is how we're led by the Spirit as if we abide in him And we abide in him primarily through the spiritual disciplines of reading and studying God's word, of engaging with God in prayer, of being in fellowship with fellow believers all the time. These are crucial. This is abiding. And when we are abiding in Christ, he promises to abide in us and he abides in us by his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will lead us in these things. And the Holy Spirit's guidance isn't always something like a knock on the back of the head or a dream or a vision or a a voice from heaven. No, the Holy Spirit's leading in the believer and the practice believer that's abiding in Christ is just the believer feeling like, oh, you know, I should probably go do this. And they're probably, if they're abiding in Christ, doing what is according to the Spirit because they, they have the Holy Spirit within them, and He guides us. So very often, how do we know where to minister? How do we know what to say? Very often, just minister where it seems right to you. Say what seems right to you as a believer, abiding in Jesus Christ. And He also does an internal motivation Uh, corporately, that it's reinforced corporately among the people of God. Like the sending of Paul and Barnabas, there was corporate confirmation of their being ministers of the gospel. And you'll see this at work as you fellowship with the people of God and you work together with the people of God, you'll see that he confirms things corporately that one person will say, you know, I was thinking we ought to go go down there and talk to such and such people. And, and someone else will chime. I was thinking the exact same thing. Let's go do it because it just seems right. But it's confirmed then among a plurality of people. And shortly after becoming a believer, I began to feel that I should, uh, I should go and get an education and, and to devote myself to vocational ministry, if at all possible. And so I'm, I'm turning this over in my head and I'm thinking about it and I'm praying about it. And, and I come to church one day and, and I see my mentor happens to be standing with our pastor and I speak to both them. I'm like, can I, can I speak to you guys for a minute? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, let's, let's go in here and talk for a minute. And 
you know, I began to explain to them what I was feeling and what I was thinking. And they just looked at each other and smiled. And I'm like, what? Because I'm a new believer at this point. I don't really understand these things. And am I being foolish? Am I being silly? They, they, they're smiling at each other. And then they say, yeah, we know. And they explained they already knew they had spoken about it themselves, that they saw that the Lord was working in me to to take me into a, another step in my life, to go get an education for a, a theological, biblical education, and then to go minister the gospel. And, um, and, and this was confirmed. It was so affirming to me when it happened because... The, these two godly men that I respected and understood that the Lord was speaking to them in the same way. No, it wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't a dream or a vision. It wasn't like a voice came from heaven and told us all. No, but it was confirmed in us what seemed reasonable to us. So it's a great internal motivation that takes place among the people of God. But we have to admit by reading the book of Acts that there's also external motivations. Uh, these these great external motivations very often in the book of Acts include persecution. <clears throat> and very often is, these are just circumstances working toward things. You get a new job at another city or whatever. Well, guess what? That is God moving you to another city to minister there. Why? Because there's something there you need and there's someone there who needs you. And this is, if you look at life this way as a believer, then it's going to clear up a lot of things for you. Now think about this. In Acts chapter 16, Paul gets his call over to Macedonia and, and he receives it in a vision. And the vision is of a man calling them to Macedonia. Well, we never hear about this man. Did he ever meet this particular man that's in a vision? Or was this just a, you know, a hypothetical illustrated to Paul to get him to go to Macedonia. Well, he goes to Macedonia and the first people that they really minister to is a woman named Lydia and her household that become believers at the ministry of Paul. Well, Lydia wasn't even from Philippi. This was in the city of Philippi. And uh, Lydia wasn't even from there. She was from Thyatira. Well, interestingly, later we find out the gospel's been to Thyatira. Hmm. John ministered there at some point. And, but was it the seed planted there by Lydia? We don't know. But we do understand she met the gospel there in Philippi. She met Jesus Christ uh, through the teachings of Paul there in Philippi. And it gave Paul and the others a base of operation to begin to plant a church there, which became a significant church. And so circumstances like this, why is Lydia living in Philippi? I don't know. She probably had business reasons for being there because Thyatira wasn't a great place to do business. We know she was a seller of purple, which would come from Thyatira probably, and but be a better market in Philippi. And so she's perhaps there on work. And, and Paul happens into the picture. And so this uh, is fascinating. Look at Priscilla and Aquila. They were moved temporarily from Rome. Had it not been for the fact that Claudius had expelled them from Rome, Paul would have missed out on these two great ministers of the gospel, these two people who at some point risked their lives for Paul. And then they would have missed out on the ministry of Paul, who no doubt added a great deal to their understanding of the gospel and their walk with the Lord. 
today you're having in your life employment changes. We have immigration happening. We have people moving to different nations for opportunity. We have wars driving people out of certain areas and into other areas. And occasionally there's direct persecution against the Christian church that moves many people about like it moved the people out of Jerusalem in the beginning of the book of Acts. This is how God moves his people, this internal motivation of the Holy Spirit and this external motivations of circumstances. He's moving his people about. Now, a lot of people say, well, some things just happen. Wars just happen. Claudius's edict just happened. Why do you see in this and read into this God's uh, provision? Why do you read into this and say this is God acting? Because of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. Let's go there for a moment. I don't even have it in your notes, but we're going to go there anyway, because this verse is key. We know that, and, and let me bring this up for you in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Did you see? It said all things work together for good for his people. They work together for good for his people. Not for others. There's no promise of this for unbelievers. This is a promise for believers only that God is working things to good. So do you have to move to Pittsburgh next month because of your job? Do you have to leave the area you're in because of war or persecution or famine? Let me tell you why you're doing that. If you are a child of God, that is happening in your life because it is what God wants to do to add to you or to add you to someone else he is building his church. He is ministering his to his people. He is working things for their good and for their benefit. And this is why God moves his people. These three reasons I want to show to you here, and these are all the same. I put three reasons. These are really all the same. First of all, salvation. You notice that that we have this Ethiopian eunuch that God is working in, drawing him through the scriptures, but this man is not yet saved. And this is in Acts chapter 8. And what does God do? God sends Philip. Philip walks along by him. And, you know, and sure enough, this man, you know, he, he, he does what seems reasonable to him. Let's ask him what he's reading. Okay. That seemed reasonable to Philip to do. God didn't have to give him every little detail to minister to this man. And he says, well, I'm reading this about, you know, in the scroll Isaiah. And he's like, well, do you understand what you're reading? He's like, well, how can I understand if someone doesn't explain it to me? So he joins him in the chariot and, and he goes along with him and he explains what it is this man is reading and the man gets baptized. In other words, he believed uh, to the point, oh, I need to get baptized now. This is what God does. He moves people around for the salvation of people. His hand is in your coming to Christ. And so often we want to put it in our hands. Oh, I, I seemed like I decided I wanted to go to church. You know, that's my wife and our, you know, our, our story is we decided <laughs> that we wanted to go to church because we wanted to raise our children around Christian people because we saw the ways of the world and we had some association with church when we were younger. And so we began to look for a church. But what it was, was God drawing us to himself, God working things out that we could know him. 
And then salvation doesn't just come when we all of a sudden believe and get baptized. God's not done with this. No, the the whole New Testament testifies to the fact that then he begins a process in us. He continues salvation through a process we call sanctification, being further set apart, being further refined and improved and growing closer to God and abiding to him uh, more faithfully all through our lives. And God moves his people also for edification. That is a corporate act to edify us, to build us up. That word just means to build up, to edify his church, to build us together. This is important to understand because in the New Testament, there are certain illustrations given concerning the church. One of those is that the church is like a body being made of different parts that serve different purposes. Now, Paul explains that in the Corinthian letter of all things, that some parts are going to be like a mouth and some are going to be like the hands and some are going to be like the parts that are not seen that are but but are just as critically important. And this is what we see, and this is our experience in the church. Different people have different gifts and different abilities. And we have some people in our church that are gifted uh, extroverts that love to spread the gospel, love to talk to everyone about it. We have other people that are more behind the scenes, or maybe their thing is hospitality, or maybe their thing is to, to minister and to disciple people once they become believers. Everyone has different strengths and weaknesses, and God assembles them together in order to build up a local body of believers. This is edification. Also, another uh, illustration that Paul uses of what the church is, is a building made up, of course, of different bricks and different parts and doorways and windows and everything else. In other words, a temple of the Holy Spirit. So different people, different needs fitted together locally to minister the gospel. So what do we do with this information? We see that God moves his people and how he moves his people in the book of Acts. We can discern very clearly why he moves his people from the rest of the New Testament, things like Romans 8.28, that he's moving people around for their good. So how do we put this into practice and how do we face our days with this information? Well, first of all, I'd encourage you this, understand these things how Jesus builds his church. Jesus builds his church in such a way that every member contributes something. And he builds his church in such a way as every member benefits from something. Whether you are the pastor, whether you're the one who cleans the toilets the day before church, He is using you to minister to the body of believers and he is using the body of believers to minister to your needs. He is meeting need with need and he is putting us together to do these things. Why is this important to understand this? This is important to understand this so that we walk into every situation with the people of God thinking, what can I add to the situation? Why does God have me here? What is it I should do? Most often what will seem good to us is what we ought to do. And we are to engage in every conversation like that, every situation like that. Many people struggle in their Christian life because they're looking for a church to meet their needs. And I believe that is the wrong way to go about looking for a church. First of all, you look for a church that teaches the gospel, the true gospel, faithfully as it was taught 
in the scriptures. Secondly, you look for the church in which you can serve. Yeah, in which you can serve, regardless of your needs. You might have tremendous needs. You might have to have someone hold your hand every day because you're just so torn up over difficulties, trials in your lives, temptations that you're given over to, or everything else. Nevertheless, you look for that church in which you can serve because that'll be the place where God wants you to be. And he will meet your needs. You have needs. He will meet them in the place where he will have you to meet the needs of others. Each member benefits. And so we want to understand these things so that we can trust the Lord Jesus to build his church. We can trust him to build his church. You are here, wherever it is you are, this morning, because that is where God wants you to be. You are there to add to the body of Christ by your ministry. And you are there to be added to by the ministry of others. Where does it seem good for you to be? What does it seem good for you to do? Now, I was, for instance, I was brought to the church that I'm in to teach. That is my primary thing. I'm their pastor. I, I primarily feed them the word of God. And I, I try to guide them in the scriptures and point them in the scriptures, not just from the pulpit, but also personally. And But I was brought here that I would be taught. And in my years here at this church, I have learned a great deal. I have seen great examples. And there are people still to this day in this church that, that far exceed me in some of the categories of faithfulness. And it's, it's their strengths where I am weak. And they have strengthened me and I have strengthened them. And this is a mutual upbuilding. Now, some, sometimes I think that I just came to this church to teach them patience <laughs> or to perhaps teach them tolerance by my, uh, my being such a difficulty all the time. But nevertheless, they have been gracious and have taught me grace by their tolerance of me and by their great ministry to me. And here's a question, though, for you. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he paid the price for your sins upon the cross? And do you believe that he rose again to show that he was the one who could pay it? Now, first of all, you, you must believe those things in order to be saved. For no works of the law can we save ourselves. There's no works we can do to, to erase the sins that we have committed. We are guilty before God and, and our sin stands to condemn us. And having sinned against a perfect and eternal and holy God, then that requires a complete and eternal punishment. But if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. So start there. And if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you can trust him that he's building his church. And I know sometimes it looks chaotic. And when I say his church, I'm talking about true believers. I know there are some churches out there that you look at that you're like, this, this can't be of God, and it might not be. But what I'm talking about is those that truly know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you can trust him to be putting them together to continue to push forward the gospel truth and the gospel message. We have seen in the book of Acts what this looks like. 
And so now we can see our role in it, our piece in it. We are the Priscilla's and the Aquila's and, and the Twelve and the Tyrannus and, and Nepal, you know, all of us involved in meeting one another's needs and ministering together in, in a wonderful way that Jesus Christ is meeting the needs of his body. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for putting us together. We thank you, Lord, for the, the way that you assemble your church, that you have these, these infinite variables and, and these uh, sometimes very stiff-necked people, Lord, and you're, and you're somehow arranging them to minister to one another, to minister love. And this is ultimately what it's all about. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your great ministry among your saints. And we ask you, Lord, to continue it through us. Continue it despite us. Lord, match us with those who will make up for our weaknesses. Match us with those who can benefit from our strengths. For you have given strengths to each and every one of your people. So reveal it to those who listen today. And, and show them what they ought to do to minister the gospel truth, to be part of this never-ending story. For these things, just as these people's stories are written in the book of Acts, so ours are written in the book of deeds and will be accounted forever for your glory at how you've ministered to your saints. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to contact us uh, if you're interested in learning more, if you're interested in engaging with us, uh, if we have missed something and I am the Apollos that has come on, come in with something short, contact me with that. Perhaps uh, God is leading you to perfect something in me and perhaps I may be able to add some spiritual gift to you. But if you email us at whitesfrombaptist at gmail.com, I will respond personally to those emails and I will get back to you uh, with things that I pray will be helpful to you. So God bless you and may the Lord keep you and, and just show you his grace and his mercy and his love.